Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are the king of the universe. We're thankful for Jesus, who you sent to be our savior. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit, who empowers us. And we're going to talk about that today. And we ask that you will enlighten us and let us come to increasing insights about your kingdom. We ask that your will be done on this earth at this critical time in history, and that we can be your agents to be effective uh, to carry your message forward. We pray in your holy name. Amen. If you will join me, this is my wife's birthday today, Christy, and if we can sing happy birthday to her, okay, all righty, yes, yes, I know, I'll pay for that later, guys, I'll pay for that later. Happy birthday to you, We are doing lesson five in our quarterly, Making Friends for God, and the uh, title is Spirit-Empowered Witnessing. Received this email this week. I'm to share it with you. I'm so excited about the free resource opportunity. I'm sure it is a lot of work on your end, um, but I have been telling everyone I think will be interested about it. Thank you and praise God for your continued commitment to share and spread this beautiful truth. When I was at the conference in Texas, I shared with Tim how God had led me to share the God-shaped heart with the pastor of a Sunday church I attend. The pastor was hungry for answers, for truth. He got the book, studied it, and the Spirit brought the truth home. The pastor received it, and he now shares this beautiful, these beautiful God concepts with his congregation. Sunday, his wife shared with me that they, re- they read the book, Uh, that until they read the book, they were lost in legalism and struggling with confusion about God's character. Their upbringing, though not SDA, had brought the same incongruent concepts. If God is love, how can this be true? And fill in the this with whatever lie the devil spins. She uh, She said that book saved their spiritual lives and their own personal relationship. They have both accepted this beautiful truth and are sharing it with over a 1,000 people each Sunday through Facebook. They are both so excited. She said that they have never felt so free in God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Truly praise him from whom all blessings flow. This story brought shivers and tears at the wonder of our amazing God. So thought I'd share that with you guys. A couple of... uh, Bible text that the, uh, that the lesson references in our Sabbath lesson is Mark sixteen fifteen. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And Acts 1, 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is the gospel? The good news. How would you describe it? Salvation in Jesus? That certainly is good news, isn't it? That is good news. There's no question about it. Yet Revelation states that the gospel is eternal. Not just eternal for the future, but eternal in eternity past. Has Jesus always been our Savior in eternity past? Was there a time when humans didn't even exist and was the gospel still good news? So what good news is directly related to our salvation in Jesus, directly part of our salvation in Jesus, yet pre-exists our salvation in Jesus? 
God's character. God's character, exactly. The truth about God himself. That's the eternal good news. But how is that good news connected to salvation in Jesus? What was the basis of sin? What was the root cause that caused sin? Not trusting God. Okay, lies told about God that broke the circle of love and trust. False understandings of God. This is what did it. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. And therefore, affection to God was lost, so that's called disaffection. Our heart loyalty isn't to God anymore. Our heart loyalty is to protect self. And what broke that? Believing the lies about God. Told by Satan. So what would be needed then to save sinners? You will know the truth, and the truth will... Okay, so we need the truth about God to restore us to trust. There's no question. But is the truth about God that wins us to trust, is that enough? Is that all we need? Is that all fallen humans need, sinners need? We just need the truth. That's all we need. Or do we need something even more than that to be healed? Transformation. Transformation, exactly right. We need a new heart and right spirit. We need a perfect, sinless human character. How many of us could develop that? So Jesus came not only as a human to reveal the truth, to destroy the lies, to win us to trust, but he came as a human to actually achieve what no other human could achieve, what Adam failed to achieve, sinless perfection in his humanity. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then it says in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Many people get like made perfect because they think perfection is the same as sinless. It's not. Jesus was always sinless. Adam and Eve were created sinless. But Adam and Eve were not perfected. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. A solidified character that is formed and solidly established in God's principles, methods, and truths so that it cannot be shaken from it. That's Bible maturity. That's Bible perfection. Adam and Eve were sinless, and they had the ability through their own power in Eden prior to sin to reject lies, choose truth, and solidify their character in loyalty to God. They had that ability in Eden. But once they believed the lies, broke trust with God, their characters were deformed, and we inherit a fear-based, self-centered character. We do not have the ability in ourselves to do that. Christ achieved that. God cannot create character. He can create sinless beings, which he did. Character, though, is developed by the free choices of the being. So Christ became human, took up humanity, broken in Adam, and he, with his human choices, exercising his human abilities, being tempted as a human in every way, just like we are, but without sin, chose to solidify himself in perfection of character that he developed as a human being, even to the point of death. He would rather die than deviate. He was solidified. So we need more than truth. We need a new character. And those us, when we accept Christ, the Spirit, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get the mind of Christ. We're new creatures in Christ. Okay, So Christ becomes the template which the Spirit brings into our hearts, and as we align with love, 
uh, 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 choose, value, grow in, we become assimilated more and more in our inner worlds to be like Christ by our free will choices to accept, align, and follow. But what happens if we delete and change both of these reasons and replace the true gospel, the good news about God's character, perfectly revealed in Christ, who lived out the perfection of God's character as a human being, solidifying himself as a human being in perfect character development, and thus becomes our second Adam, our Savior. If we replace the good news about God and instead say that Jesus died in order to pay a legal penalty to God so God won't kill us. And the good news is that we have somebody standing between us and God to protect us from God. And if we if we exchange the real thing for this other thing, then what happens in hearts and minds? Does fear get taken away? No, it gets inflamed. We remain forever in fear and, 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 and only have security in either some legal mechanism that we claim, but then we live in fear. Did I remember all the sins? Because if I didn't, there's one on the book up there somewhere that could still get me. Or we live in fear of standing in the judgment without an intercessor. Do you see how this false gospel, this penal legal lie, this false gospel removes both elements necessary for our salvation. The truth about God's character and the perfect character of Christ, which is stored in us, truth and a new nature. We no longer have the truth because we have a lie about God. We no longer seek a new heart because we claim legal payment and all my sins are in books being erased, so I don't need a new heart. I've got legal claims. <clears throat> Further, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. Truth destroys lies, wins to trust. Love is the character of God that we receive through the work of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit becomes the agency of Jesus to advance the truth, destroy lies, win to trust, and administer into our hearts new motives and new desires. If we reject the truth about God, then we don't seek the Spirit to heal us. We seek Jesus to intercede with the Father for us. So the gospel is the good news about God. That's the gospel, good news about God. What's the power? <clears throat> Talked about power. The power. What is it? Here's a quote from a book called Acts of the Apostles, page 12. Wherein too, asked Christ, shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? He could not employ the kingdoms of the world as a similitude. In society, he found nothing with which to compare it. How much teaching of Christianity has God's kingdom looking just like human, a legal process, a jury, a judge in heaven, an advocate, a prosecutor, a, a, a punit, we're on death row, waiting sentence, except Jesus took the death penalty for, how much of Christianity is completely perverted by presenting God's kingdom functioning like him. But nothing on earth can represent God's kingdom, according to this author. And of course, that's what Jesus said. Earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power. But Christ's kingdom 
But from Christ's kingdom, every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion is banished. This kingdom is to uplift and ennoble humanity. God's church is the court of holy life, filled with varied gifts and endowed by the Spirit. The members are to find their happiness and the happiness of those whom they help and bless. What is the power that we are to use? Paul in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Power, power in the gospel. What's the gospel? Good news. Good news about what? God's character and God's character fully lived out in Christ that we see God and what he achieved as a human, a human being restoring humanity to perfection and harmony with God. So what kind of power is the gospel? It's, it's the power of truth. So this is out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 759. So what do you think about this one? So talking about this idea of power. How are we as Christians today to use power? Desire of Ages 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. Now how hard is it for, for me to do that? That isn't hard at all. No effort at all. And what kind of law is involved? And and that's ultimately a beautiful analogy because how will the wicked die in the end? Because God holds on to them or he lets them go. And he's the source of all life. And so as he lets go, they fall into oblivion. That's it. That's how easy it would have been for God to eliminate Satan and all his sympathizers. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Meditate on that for a minute, folks. Compelling power. Compelling power is not restraining power. Do you understand the difference between compelling and restraining? Compelling is forcing people. Restraining is stopping people. There is a righteous use of physical power. The righteous use of physical power is to restrain evil, hedge of protection. They can be battering against the walls, trying to come in and destroy. It's righteous to hold the wall, to restrain evil. There's lots of places people restrain evil, righteously. And this is Romans chapter 13, when Paul talks about God's ordaining of human governments. The purpose of the human government is not to compel righteousness, but to restrain evil. To stop the mobs from burning down neighborhoods. That's a righteous use of power, to restrain evil. That's not what this is talking about. This is about compelling power, forcing people to do things that they're not persuaded to do. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Um, not that all compelling actions are necessarily against the kingdom of God, but the compelling itself is not God's way. For instance, we pay taxes in this country via what kind of power? Compelling power. You are compelled to do it, Because if you don't, you will be imprisoned. When God brought um, forth, had Israel bring forth resources for the temple, 
It was not compelling. It was offerings only. He did not compel. You must do this or you will be beaten. No. He called for offerings. And the offerings came. That's how the temple was supported, through tithes and offerings. Not through compelling power. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means. Our means are to do what? Present the principles of goodness, mercy, and love. God's government is moral. Now, now, here comes the power. And truth and love are to be the prevailing power. Truth and love prevail. Truth and love prevail. Can you ever get more love by threatening to kill people who don't love you? Can you get more love? Ever, ever, never. You can't get more love by having a mob and burning down a building. You will never get more love doing that. You will never get more love going on rampages and and assaulting people. You cannot get more love doing that. Truth and love. Truth combined with love. By the way, love without truth is vulnerable. In Eden, Adam and Eve had love for God. And it was a love more pure and without flaw than the love we have today. Everybody agree with me? But that love alone did not keep them safe because they did not have truth sufficiently understood and incorporated into their character that protected them from believing lies. Lies broke the circle of love and trust when they believed them. So love alone is not sufficient. It has to be love combined with truth. This is the prevailing. That's why the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. Truth without love, though, becomes a bludgeon that we can injure people with. Have you seen that? Bring some truth to bear on somebody and crush them with it with no love. That's not from the Spirit of God either. It's truth and love combined. So from the indwelling Spirit, the Bible teaches that the power to be used, the method to achieve God's goal is not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4, six. We can never achieve God's goal. Remember what God wants. He wants your love. He wants your trust. He wants your loyalty. He wants your friendship. He wants your heart devotion. None of these things can be achieved by threatening to kill you if you don't give them. None of these can be achieved by compelling power, by threats of punishment. None of these can be achieved by anything any government in the history of the world can do. Doesn't matter just the U.S. government. Any government. They cannot go into Congress and Senate and pass laws that say you will love your neighbor and achieve love for your neighbor. They can't do it. So why, why doesn't compelling power work? Let me, let me put it to you. What impact does force, threat, coercion have upon a person's mind, heart, character, their self. What, what, what reaction do people have to force, threat, and coercion? It increases fear. Your fear level goes up. 
it decreases trust. I trust the person who's threatened me less. It increases resentment. Resentment goes up. It decreases love. I love them less. Can you all, are you all with me? You feel it. And all of that results in either loss of individuality, where you surrender and become this passive person. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Whatever you say. Yes, sir. No, sir. Whatever you say, sir. You become a passive person just to avoid any, I can't, don't do anything, anything you say, I'll do. Just don't hurt me. You identify with the aggressor or you rebel. You go into violence and you rebel. That's the only outcome from using this type of compelling power. What impact does the power of truth and love presented with freedom, liberty, the principles of God, have upon a person? Genuine freedom. This is why the constitutional protections of liberties are so important. You understand individuality cannot grow without freedom. Love cannot grow without freedom. Truth does not advance in environments where you are abused for speaking truth. It shuts down people's pursuit of truth for fear. So, what impact does truth, love, and freedom have? It decreases fear. When you experience, you can really speak freely, and you're still loved and accepted. You're not going to be punished for it. Your fear goes down. This is not only in society, it's in marriages. How many marriages have I seen where people live in fear of what their spouse will say or how they'll respond if we actually speak what I think? So they're constantly modulating and walking on eggshells in their relationship because they don't want to upset the other person. It's not healthy. When you actually experience freedom to speak, fear goes down. When you actually experience truth and love and freedom, truth, I'm loved, I'm free, trust goes up. I trust these people. And when wrongs occur in that environment, we are much more readily to forgive the wrong, which eradicates resentment. And we genuinely have growth and love in these environments. We love more. Which all of this together leads to restoration of a person's individuality, the development of their self-governance, the increase of their confidence, and their growing up into the full stature of Jesus Christ. Understand why Satan is so insistent that the church teach that God's kingdom runs on the methods of the world. Coercion, force, threat. It obstructs completely his healing plan. Remember 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument, pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. That war is a battle for our mind. My blog this week, if you haven't read it, it's on learning to discern. And I start out by informing people, we're in a war for your mind. Your mind is under assault in our society today. Do you feel it? Do you feel the pressure? And it's assault from both sides, from all sides. And do you realize that the vast majority of people assaulting your mind have no interest in you learning to reason and think? They have no interest in you coming to your own conclusion. They want to propagandize you. They want to indoctrinate you. It's a war for your mind. In the blog this week, I go through and provide some tools that you can use that can 
prevent your mind from being indoctrinated and propagandized and give you the ability to discern and think for yourself. So what weapons do we use? We use the weapons of truth, love, and wield them in freedom. Is it possible that people could think they're promoting the gospel, but actually promoting a false gospel? Amen. Yes. Remember in Galatians, even if an angel of light comes with the gospel other than we preach, let them be eternally condemned. Yeah, there are other gospels out there that aren't the true gospel. What happens if we accept a different version of the gospel than the true gospel? There are design laws involved here, folks. The law of worship, the law of exertion. We become like what we admire and worship. We actually change neurobiologically and characterologically. And as we exert and practice those principles, we wire new pathways into our brain to become habitual, and we are slowly transformed. These are design laws. If we persist in promoting a false gospel, we become hardened in alienation to God. If we are lovers of the truth, we may, and most of us have had this experience, do we not? We may have had experiences where at one time we look back and go, you know, I used to believe that wrong. That does not harden you to have beliefs that are wrong. What hardens you is a refusal when better understandings come along to accept them, to grow. We are finite beings. None of us know all things. The healthy person, the godly person, is a person who has a heart that loves truth and has a desire to the spirit of truth, says, Lord, I want to grow in truth. I know there's things I don't even understand or maybe some things I got wrong. Lead me in the way everlasting. Eliminate the distortions. Replace them with truth. And as we grow, we will let go of that. But the people that get hardened are the ones who say, I can see, I understand, but I like this way better. And they reject the truth. They won't advance. Then they harden themselves in alienation. Consider the implication of this historic quote from Acts of the Apostles, page 50. What do you think of this? Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter of little thought, as a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declination, meaning regression, and death. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in his train is lacking, though offered in infinite plenitude. Minor. So when we're not pursuing this Holy Spirit, when, when, when we, we think little of the Holy Spirit and we get distracted on minor matters, would politics be minor matters? <laughs> Think about it. When we get distracted on this other stuff, and this is the devil's trap, he, 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 will, he, will, he will present something that we are passionate about. But it is not an eternal matter. Keep on with the quote. Since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we not talk of it, pray for it, and preach concerning it? The Lord is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who serve him than parents are to give gifts to their children. For the daily baptism of the Spirit, daily baptism of the Spirit, every worker should offer his petition to God. Companies of Christians, Christian workers should gather to ask for special help, for heavenly wisdom that they may know how to plan and execute wisely. Especially should they pray that God will baptize his chosen ambassadors in mission fields with rich measure of his spirit. The presence of the spirit 
with God's workers will give the proclamation of truth a power that not all the honor and glory of the world could give it. Do we ask for the Holy Spirit with real desire to receive him into our lives? Daily. What would cause us to value the Spirit so little? I put some hypotheses down here. What would cause us to value the Spirit so little? I, I hear many people praying to Jesus or to the Father. I hear, don't hear a lot of requests for the Holy Spirit growing up. I never did. Very, very rarely did people actually ask for the Holy Spirit. Why? Perhaps they're frightened by the fear of false spirits. The Bible tells us to test the spirits or different spirits out there. Perhaps they've seen movements that smack of fanaticism or emotionalism. And, and those, those movements claim to be of the spirit. And they're afraid to, 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 to be caught up in some emotionalism, fanaticism, false spirit stuff, so they don't value the true spirit. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. Perhaps that's the reason. Perhaps accepting a legal theology in which one falsely believes salvation is claiming the legal blood payment to have one's heavenly record books adjusted and have already done that and, and, and all my sins, past, present, and future, have already been paid for. So what's the need of the Spirit? There's no need. Perhaps it's anti-Trinitarian views opposing, uh, proposing that there is no Holy Spirit. There's only God the Father, and the Father's omnipresent, and we can ask for the Father's presence in our life, but there really isn't a Holy Spirit to ask for anyway, so why ask? What happens if we reject or don't accept the Holy Spirit? What is the problem of not valuing and embracing and requesting the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, here's one view of the importance of the Holy Spirit from the book Desire of Ages. See if you agree. It's page uh, 671. In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, the office work, the office work, meaning the role that the Godhead had decided amongst themselves, they would divide up. Jesus took a certain role to become incarnate. The Holy Spirit didn't take that role. Father didn't take that role. Jesus took that role. That was his office work. The Holy Spirit takes a different role. What's his role? Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, hold your horses, folks, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. Understand what that the spirit makes effectual. It's like think of this medical now. We've got a disease. This disease we're infected with. We're dying from this disease. Uh, somebody comes, maybe named Jesus, who create who procures a remedy that will cure the disease. 
It's free, it's available, and he has an agency, an agent that will take the, take his remedy. He hands it to his agent and says, no, go, spread it to, to everybody who wants it. And that agent is the Holy Spirit. He takes the victories of Christ and makes them effectual in our lives. He is the administrator of the remedy. He is not the one who procured or developed the remedy. He administers it. So we have a remedy, but what happens if we reject the one that comes and says, here, here's the remedy from Christ. I'm going to apply it into your heart. Oh, I don't believe in you. I don't need you. I've already got my legal payment. It's made in the books of heaven. Jesus is up there pleading my behalf to the Father so he won't kill me. I don't need you. Do you see how the legal model and the anti-Trinitarian models are completely obstructing the plan for God to bring into our hearts what Jesus has worked out? It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Notice where the divine nature, notice where the merits of Christ, notice where the metaphorical blood, Jesus said, if you don't drink my, uh, drink my, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Notice where he's applying it. The metaphorical blood, which is the life, the life is in the blood, the life of Christ, where is it being applied? It's in us. It says, partaking of the divine nature, the Spirit is taking the nature of Christ and putting it in us. That's partaking of the, of the blood. But you know what? The legal model says, no, he's in heaven taking his blood, putting it on record books and erasing history. Christ has given his spirit as a divine, as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. Do you see how desperately Satan wants the spirit to be valued a little? Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says, uh, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus met the disciples' concern about his leaving them and returning to heaven. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come uh, to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. The Greek word for helper is parakletos. Uh, It refers to one who comes alongside of for the purpose of helping. One of the prime functions of the Holy Spirit is to come alongside of all believers to empower and to guide them in their witnessing activities. When we witness for Jesus, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is beside us to guide us to those honest-hearted seekers. He prepares the hearts before we ever meet them. He guides our words, brings conviction to the seeker's mind, and strengthens them to respond to his promptings. What is it that Jesus, God the Father, and the Spirit want from us? What do they want? Beautifully said, transformation. They want to restore us to sinless perfection. That's what they want. They want to heal us, restore us. What does it require from us for that to happen? Yes, willing cooperation. Or as Paul says in Romans 14, be fully persuaded in your own mind. We must each be convinced of the truth. We must come to trust God for ourselves. We must surrender our own hearts to God, which means each must strive in this life with their own temptations, hurts, heartaches, trials, and wrestle out with God like Jacob wrestled, not against God, 
Jacob that night of wrestling, folks, many people misunderstand it. They actually see this as a wrestling context in the Olympics where he's like wrestling against the person. This was not what was happening. What was happening is Jacob had lived his entire life based on fear and selfishness, con man, conniving, cheating, self-centered, and he was going back home now, and it was coming due. He was afraid Esau was going to make him pay his debt because he cheated his brother. He deceived his brother. So his fear, his self-preservation fears were coming on. He was wrestling against his own fear and selfishness. And he could not overcome it on his own. He could only come overcome it united with God. And so Jesus came to him to strengthen him. Read the context. But what did he, he perceived it as an attack. He didn't understand the gentle hand of Jesus there to strengthen him. And so he begins wrestling with Have you ever wrestled against your conscience? Your conscience is trying to lead you, but you're wrestling against it? That's what's happening. And after all night of wrestling, have you ever wrestled all night on your conscience? After all night of wrestling with the conscience, then the Lord ups the ante just a little bit, dislocates his hip, brings a little more pain to bear. He wasn't punishing him. He wasn't assaulting him. He was therapeutically intervening, giving Jacob just what he needed. And you notice Jacob surrendered at that point. I surrender all. And Jacob got the victory because he wrestled against his own fear and selfishness and finally overcame, I trust you. And his name was changed at that moment. That's when his name, from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, the one who, with God, overcomes. You finally trusted me and have overcome your fear that you've that have been plaguing you and your self-centered actions that you've been, been practicing because of that for your whole life. That's, that's what's going on here. Each one of us have our own temptations, our own struggles, our own heartaches, and we have to, with God, wrestle them out until we come to that same point that we surrender all. Because it has to be a free Chosen experience. It cannot be forced. God has the power to overwrite you. But if he does, you don't exist anymore. He could, he would just erase your individuality. The only way for your individuality to be retained is for your willful participation and free acceptance and invitation in for God to do this work in you. God does not want us to give him the obedience of a well-trained dog. He doesn't want us to simply sit there and go, okay, master, I'm waiting. You tell me what to do. So you tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I, you say jump. I jump. You just tell me, tell me. I, I don't want to think. I don't want to reason. I don't want, I don't want to go off mark. So I'm going to sit here and wait until you tell me. Squirrel. Squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> what God wants from us is he wants to win us over so that we in our individuality completely agree with him completely trust him, completely understand his methods, his, his principles, his design laws for life, and freely choose them. I agree with you, Lord, 100%. I'm weak still. I, I, have, I have many, many, many shortcomings. But boy, in my heart, I love you, and I love your methods. That's, that's for me. That's what he wants. So what kind of help, then, does the Holy Spirit give us to get us there? How does the Holy Spirit work? One, he reveals truth to people in ways they can comprehend it. He's working on all minds and all places, 
and all languages. He's not, he's, not, he's not speaking English in Germany. All languages. He's moving on people's hearts and minds in ways they can understand it. He will bring a conviction, a conviction of sin, a conviction of duty, a longing for something more, a conviction that this world does not satisfy the soul. There's something missing. He will bring that conviction, a longing. He will also bring hope. He will comfort. He will bring love. But he leaves completely free. He brings us to decision points. And it's not one single decision point. I was saved when I was 12 at boot camp or at camp, whatever. I was saved. No, it's not one decision point. He brings us to decision point after decision point after decision point after decision point. And as we're, those decision points were left completely free. And we don't move forward in God's plan until we choose to apply the truth he's brought to us at that point. We're stuck at that point. And if we reject the advancement, the embracing of the truth long enough, then we actually begin sliding back down the hill into darkness. And the light that was in us becomes darkness. We have to keep advancing in truth. But he leaves us free. Sometimes we may wrestle for a period of time. I've known people wrestled for years on a particular truth. The Holy Spirit doesn't give up. But they don't move forward until they embrace it. And when they take that step, then their life begins to really transform. Have you seen that? Leaves us completely free to decide for ourselves. Now get this, get your mind around this. Holy Spirit gives truth, brings conviction, makes us uneasy with the circumstance we're in. Uh, we, we come to the point we understand the decision. We do not get the power until we actually choose the truth. Many people wait for the power, beg for the power, but they haven't actually made the choice for truth yet. No, you get the power sufficient to live the truth when you've chosen the truth in your heart. God then empowers you to be successful. And it may not be, sometimes it's instantaneous. I've known people with addictions who have had an instantaneous freeing. When they really chose the truth, they never had another craving. I've known others who have chosen the truth, but they had to wrestle that out and daily surrender. Uh, it's a daily journey. Every day they admit that they're powerless. And every day, and as they grow, eventually over time for them, the cravings go away. The Spirit then, after we have surrendered, after we've chosen the truth, after we have been reborn, after we are have hearts of the Lord now, the Spirit then also will bring gifts, abilities, to enable us to succeed in fulfilling anything God has called us to do. But we don't even get those gifts if we're not converted. Monday's lesson, an empowered church. What does it mean, an empowered church? Does that mean one with electricity? What kind of power? We just talked about the power. What kind of power? Holy Spirit. Which, 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 what's the prevailing power? Truth and love. Truth and love. This is the prevailing power. Is the empowered church a denominational church? No. Does the Holy Spirit restrict his activity to certain denominations? No. Is that idea kind of maybe never stated, but kind of unconsciously felt? Yes. I felt that growing up in my church, that, that only this church was God's church, and only this church is God moving in. Or only this race, or only this sex, or only this socioeconomic standard, or whatever. 
Yeah, so all those types of divisions are not from God. God has, and we'll, we'll come to it in a minute, but God is working on the whole human race, the whole human race. Doesn't mean God can't work in specific groups as his agents to achieve certain things for the whole human race. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were called not to be exclusive for salvation, but to call to be his messengers, his ambassadors. And so the Christian church in general is called now in this time in history to be God's lights in the world. So we're called for a mission or a purpose, but we're not called for exclusive salvation. God is working to save all people. Are there any requirements to receiving the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit? I'm not speaking of the Spirit working to convict and bring an unconverted person to conversion. The Holy Spirit's working on all hearts. But converted people, we've, we've, we've accepted Jesus, we've been converted. Is there any then requirements to receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Well, genuine repentance, right? Yeah, I kind of said that one. But then repentance leads to humility. That is that, that, that we're not seeking to get glory for us. We're seeking to give glory to God. Give the credit to God, not the credit to us. A willingness. How about a, how about a willing heart to be taught rather than I've got the truth and I need to tell everybody else and I've set my stakes down? Or... A heart that loves people and a willing heart that wants to love more. Lord, help me love more. Love for God, of course. What about some level of truth, at least some level of truth about God? Will God send his spirit to us if we are not lovers of the truth? If we cling to false views of it, cling. We've all had them in the Holy Spirit. I can look back and see how the Holy Spirit has led me to develop a greater and greater as I've gotten closer and closer to God. I've had to give up certain views and, and have advanced in my understanding of God. So I don't believe the Holy Spirit was not leading me. He was. But I had a hard attitude but I wanted to grow. I wanted to know more. Is that necessary? To have that attitude of willingness to grow? In other words, will God empower people with his spirit to take a message to the world that misrepresents him? So we should not expect the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our persons or our organization if our persons or organization are actively presenting a false view of God. Should we expect it? And that's the penal legal view, guys. It's the bail view of God. So I, here's a, one of our online listeners, um, sent, uh, C.K. Lester, shared a couple of uh, quotes from uh, Ellen White, that he saw, he said, I saw these quotes on a video, and uh, he wanted to share them with us. First one is Review and Herald Extra, December 23, 1890. It says, There is to be in the Seventh-day Adventist churches a wonderful manifestation of the power of God, but it will not move upon those who have not humbled themselves before the Lord and opened the door of the heart by confession and repentance. In, in the manifestation of that power which lightens the earth with its glory... They will see only something which in their blindness they think dangerous, something which will arouse their fears, and they will brace themselves to resist it. Because the Lord does not work according to their ideas and expectations, they will oppose the work. This is in the Adventist churches. 
Why, they say, should we not know the Spirit of God when we have been in the work so many years? Hey, I've got a degree in theology. You never went to seminary. The Holy Spirit will not enlighten you with truth because you don't have the degree and you haven't worked for the church for 30 years like I have. This is exactly the kind of stuff we've heard. The person who sent this in said, uh, please note that the quote said, because the Lord does not work according to their ideas and expectations, they oppose the work. And then he put, the guy who wrote it in, ha, God's laws are not like man's laws. In other words, when we present design law, that doesn't work according to their expectations of imperial, penal, legal rule, and therefore we must reject it. And then he's, and there's a much shorter quote. This is a review in Herald, May 27, 1890. The third angel's message will not be comprehended. The light which will lighten the earth with its glory will be called a false light by those who refuse to walk in advancing glory. Do you see how those who cling to the imposed law idea, God's law works like human law. It's a system of rules, and he's required to inflict punishment. Of course he makes nature, and of course there's laws of nature and laws of health. We don't deny that at all. But when it comes to his moral laws, there is nothing wrong with murdering except God said, don't murder. And he has to enforce that. There's nothing wrong with adultery, of course, unless except God said, don't do it. Do you see how primitive and childish this thinking is? You cannot murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, covet. You cannot do any of that without damaging yourself. You sear your conscience, harden your heart, warp your character, alienate yourself from God. You become more fearful, more self-centered. This is design law. It's how reality works. But those who accept the imposed law view reject this. And I believe the three angels' messages are calling people to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. That's called to creator worship. And creator builds reality, and his laws are the reality upon which, uh, the laws upon which reality operate. Could a person fail to advance in truth by clinging to actual truth from a previous generation? They're presenting truth, but it's not truth for today. Is that possible? Well, how about accepting the Old Testament scriptures and following what the Old Testament teaches about, uh, about the coming Messiah, but rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, so you're trying to convert people to modern-day Judaism? Is that presenting the truth? It's truth that's no longer true. It was truth for a time past. It's not truth for today. And that's where you reject the truth of Jesus, then even the truth you had becomes darkness. And those who promote the Old Testament system today without Jesus promote darkness. You all get that. Here's a quote from Acts the Apostles, page 61. The enemy of the disciples could not but be convinced that Christ had risen from the dead. The evidence was too clear to be doubted. Nevertheless, they hardened their hearts, refusing to repent of their terrible deed they had committed in putting Jesus to death. Abundant evidence that the apostles were speaking and acting under divine inspiration had been given the Jewish rulers, but they firmly resisted the message of truth. Christ had 
not, uh, Christ had not come in the manner that they expected. And though at times they had been convinced that he was the Son of God, yet they stifled conviction and crucified him. In mercy, God gave them still further evidence. And so far, in this short portion of the paragraph, this author has used the word evidence three times. Evidence three times. Not declaration, not command, not claim, not proclamation, not order, not directive, not commandment, but evidence. And evidence requires something that proclamations, claims, declarations do not require. Evidence requires our contemplation, our evaluation, our reasoning, our understanding, and ultimately our agreement. Rejecting evidence has a damaging impact that rejecting claims and proclamations do not have. When we reject evidence, we turn off the brain region that thinks and reasons. We turn off the brain region that contemplates deeper thought. And we cling to non-evidence-based beliefs. We train ourselves to put our beliefs in some other person that is persuasive in their demeanor or their method of communication or their credentials, their office that they hold. He's the high priest. He's the conference president. This damages the mind and makes it harder to think and discern in the future. By reject, by, but rejecting claims doesn't have this damaging effect. Even if the claim is true, rejecting it without evidence, there's no evidence, you're just claiming that, does not turn off your reasoning, keeps you engaged. Rejecting proclamations do, do not uh, have that damaging effect. In fact, those people who have that usually have a discerning mind. Hey, that's a claim. I'm differentiating immediately. That's a claim. That's a proclamation. That's a declaration. That's an interesting one, but what's the evidence for it? In our society today, folks, there are proclamations, claims. Okay, how about this one? Proclamations and claims can also be called accusations. Accusations are claims. Declarations, that's what they are. They're not evidence. Somebody comes to you in the parking lot and says, hey, 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 I heard the pastor's having an affair with the church organist. What do you do? That's a proclamation. That's a claim. That's a declaration. It's also an accusation. There's no evidence there, right? Except there is evidence of one thing, that the person who said it is willing to gossip and can't be trusted. The person who said it, even if it's true, is not concerned with the salvation and welfare of the pastor and the organist. If it was true even, then they would go in private to them and say, hey, this is damaging your soul. It's going to hurt your reputation. You need to repent. You need to break off this illicit affair. It's, it's destructive to your, it's searing your heart, hardening your heart, all this stuff. They want their redemption. How Jesus did not expose the people who caught the woman in adultery. So we have evidence of the person who's making the claim or spreading the accusation or the gossip or the rumor. In society today, do you realize how many people have completely 
given their minds over to the loudest bullhorn, repeating the accusation and the claim over and over again. You will find this strategy repeated over and over again. If, if people don't have truth, now, look, I really want you to get your mind around this. When Jesus was here on earth, Jesus went around revealing truth. And in his revealing of truth, he exposed errors. He exposed the falsehood of Corban, if you remember what that was. He exposed the money lenders and extortionists at the, uh, he, he exposed actual evidence of wrongdoing. Things that were taught wrong. Because the truth was on his side. But notice what his opponents did. His opponents did not engage him and say, hey, uh, professor, uh, I, I think you're wrong about Corban because over here in Isaiah, it says the following, and I'd like to explore that with you a little. They didn't do it. They didn't, they, they, they threw trick questions at him, trying to trip him up and embarrass him or to, to undermine him, but they never actually engaged him reasonably with the exception of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, because he did, was persuaded by the truth. He didn't persuade Jesus. He didn't say, hey, you're wrong, professor. So the opponent, so Nicodemus really wasn't an opponent. He was a seeker of truth. And notice what happened. So Jesus presents truth. He presents evidence. He persuades. But the opponents of truth, they don't have... If if your positions are not based on truth, you cannot win in an evidence-based discussion. You will lose. And so what do you have to do instead? You have to silence the voices of truth. And so what did they do? We don't want people listening to Jesus. So what? He's a wine-bibber. He's a drunk. He frequents and hangs out with prostitutes. He's a whoremonger. He is a Satanist. He is from Beelzebub. He uses the power of Satan to do these things. Notice the strategy here. They make allegations of the worst sort for their culture to make him appear of the most diabolical character. In our society today, folks, watch what's happening. Discern. Look, who is presenting evidence? Who is actually trying to reveal facts? And who is simply going, racist, racist, bigot, with no evidence and no facts? Watch for it. I did not suggest there's not racism in the world. Of course there is. Just like there were Satanists in Christ's day. Just like there were whoremongers in Christ's day. Just like there were drunks in Christ's day. But the method of God is not to name call. Not to try and make declarations and accusations to shut down. The method of God is to invite people into... And you look at the method of Martin Luther. He presented truth and evidence to protest. He was a protestant. He was a protester, a peaceful protester. You look at the, you look at what Martin Luther King Jr., his namesake did. He had truth on his side and he wanted to engage people. He, he had great oratory, great writings. He wanted to present the truth and the evidence to engage people, to expose the corruption of the racism practice that were going on. He didn't want people to not think. He wanted people to think because he had truth. Watch for it. People who don't have truth, they don't want to have an open, free dialogue and discussion. They want to intimidate. They want to shut down. This is uh, about Christians moving forward in truth. Martin Luther, the great reformer, I just mentioned him. Should we stick to what Martin Luther taught and teach what he taught today? It was truth for a time. But if we stick to Martin Luther, we're 500 years in arrears. We're 500 years behind the advancing truth. 
This is a quote from the book Christ Triumphant, page 331. We are not to set our stakes and then interpret everything to reach a set point. In other words, we don't go to the Bible already knowing what the Bible teaches and hunting up proof text to prove that we're right in what the Bible teaches. We don't set our stakes down and then make everything fit the stakes that we've set. Here is where some of our, our Adventist great reformers have failed. And this is the reason, and maybe it was the, the reformers from the Protestant movement that's being referred to because it is capitalized. So maybe it's the Protestant reformers where the reformers have failed. And this is the reason that many who today might be mighty champions for God and the truth are warring against the truth. Wow. Warring against the truth. Why? Because they have preconceived ideas and they go to the scripture to prove their point. God designs we should be learners first from the living oracles and second from our associates. This is God's order. The word of God is the great detector of error. To it, we believe everything must be brought, but the Bible must be our standard for every doctrine. Let's see, I think there's a couple other points I wanted to make because we're running out of time in our lesson today. Oh, yeah, from what we just said, this methods and tactics of presenting truth and evidence versus trying to silence it. Let me read you a story. This is out of Acts, chapter 17, 23 through 34. Check out and see if you can see modern applications to this. Paul is in a city presenting truth. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who uh, made silver shrines uh, of Artemis, brought in no brought in uh, no little business for his craftsmen and as he brought in a lot of business he called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said men you know we receive a good income from this business and you see man, money it's, it's, it's commerce we're making good money and you see and hear how this fellow paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in ephesus and in practically the whole province of asia he says that man-made gods are no gods at all there, think that through. Man-made gods aren't gods. <laughs> That's what this guy's argument is, but anyway. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but that the temple of the great god Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Artemis is great! Artemis is great. Artemis of the Ephesians is great. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater to mob now. We're going to grab them. We're going to assault them. Uh, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd because what did Paul want to do? Reason with them, right? Uh, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture near the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another's. I wonder if this was like a chop zone of some kind. Most of the people did not even know they were there. The, the, Jewish, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense for the people, but... So he, Alexander wants to speak. Let me give a chance. Let me present truth. Let me persuade you with evidence. And what happens? But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Artemis is great. Artemis is great. 
chanting, shouting, not wanting to hear, not wanting to listen. Have we seen this practiced today? Understand the methods, folks. This is not God's methods. These are pagans worshiping a false god, rejecting the principles of Jesus Christ, and we see this happening in our society today. Truth always wins over lies in the minds of those open to truth. But those who don't have truth, don't want truth, will not be persuaded by it. They don't even want it presented to others. Truth to them is offensive. And Jesus said, John three nineteen, Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see, speakers of truth have to be silenced. They have to be called racist. They have to be called bigot. They have to be called something. We have to silence them. I'm not saying, again, there aren't racists out there. But if you're a discerning people, you will see that this brush is, 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 this brush of racism is just trying to silence anybody who doesn't accept a certain narrative. There's no intelligent discussion. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said that he had a dream that his little girls would grow up in a country where they were judged by the quality of their character, not the color of their skin. I just challenge everybody who is caught up in this emotionalism to think that through and consider if that is really what is the central message going on today. Because I support that completely. Completely. Quality of character. That's the message of Jesus Christ. It's the quality of character. The Bible does, I'm going to skip ahead, because the Bible does make divisions of society. But the Bible... There's no Jew nor Greek. There's no male or female. The Bible does not divide along nationalities. It does not divide along race. It does not divide along sex or gender. The Bible divides along, here's the metaphors, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, fruitful and withered vines, pure pure woman or harlot. These are metaphor divisions, but the metaphors point to what reality. Society is divided along character. Those with Christ-like character that practice the methods of God, who have the law of God written in their heart and mind, and those who have the character of the world that will use lies, deceptions, intimidation, coercion, and compelling power, which are not found in God's kingdom. We are in a crisis, and we're approaching the end time. And it's going to be so powerful, the delusion, that even the, the elect will be deceived if it were possible. But it won't be possible because the elect will understand God's design, have the law written on their heart and mind, And they will not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They will stand for the truth in the face of the mob. Our gracious Father in heaven, it's time for your spirit to be poured out upon all those whose hearts love what you love, who who understand your methods. We ask for your spirit to enlighten and transform, but also to empower us and to open avenues that this true message can be given effectively so that so many compassionate and good-hearted people that are being called up in emotionalism can make the distinction and re-engage their thinking powers and discern for themselves the methods of God and then take the passion that they have and process it and apply it through your kingdom's methods and not be tricked into applying the methods of the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.